Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. You may recall a couple weeks back I, I made mention of the idea this I pointed out. Many of you may know this, but maybe you're not even aware of it. When, when the Bible was originally written, there weren't chapter breaks, there weren't verses in the Bibles. In many of our Bibles, we have headings at the top of them. The original authors didn't take the time to write a heading and things like that. All of those things were added later on to make the Bible a little more accessible to us as we read through it. And we have an instance, almost always they got it. These guys were great. They did a good job with dividing things up and so on. But every now and again, you have an instance where it seems like they got the division wrong. And you're like, why'd you cut it there? You should have went up five verses or back two verses or, or something like that. And we sort of have one of those instances today. And so today what I want to do, because I believe chapter 16, verse 28, is directly connected with chapter 17, verse 1 and following. So I want to read our, our passage today and start with where we left off last week, chapter 16, 28. And so I'm going to read right through to chapter 17, 9. Follow along. It says, Now truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were, com- they were coming down the mountain... Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Certainly a remarkable account of Scripture. Anytime you have appearances of Moses, bright transfigurations, and voices from heaven speaking, it it can't be called anything but remarkable. And this scenario that we have in the opening verses of 17, it's a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus had given to the disciples just a week earlier, six days earlier, in our case, last week, that we looked at. And that's why we started today with 1628, which again, it says, Jesus saying to these disciples of his, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, the statement couldn't be more clear, stating that some of the disciples will still be alive when Jesus is magnified as God's Messiah. That's what that phrase, coming in his kingdom, means, magnified as God's Messiah. Now, the problem, however, is that all 12 of these disciples died before Jesus was set up as as king or before he returned in glory or, or anything like that. And so there's sort of a problem here. What gives? Has the Lord prophesied falsely? Was he mistaken in what he said in chapter 16, verse 28? Well, obviously we don't think that. And I think the key to understanding this is being careful with how we define that phrase, see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
Because if we see, see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom as sitting on a throne in Jerusalem or coming in the clouds in great power, then yes, this prophecy failed. For all of the disciples of Jesus died before that actually happened. They all died during the first century sometime. And none of them saw Jesus coming in that particular way. Alternative translations, however, of two key terms in that phrase, I think help us understand the text, the text a bit more clear or more clearly. The two terms that in our text are translated, at least in the version I'm reading, are the terms kingdom and coming in. Alternatively, those words, they could be translated, and they are translated that way in other places in the Bible. So alternatively, those two terms could be translated as showing and glory. And so the text then would read this way, I say to you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man showing his glory, which is exactly what happens in chapter 17, verse 1, our account today. And so this isn't a prophecy that failed to occur. It occurred six days after Jesus gave it, where some of his disciples saw him showing his glory. And we read verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James, John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, in the previous account, chapter 16, 20 to 28, something like that, in the previous account, Jesus had taken the 12 away, and they went up to that place that we looked at, Caesarea Philippi. And it was there in the most unequivocal terms to date that Jesus told them, he informed them that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he would be killed there in Jerusalem, and that on the third day he would be raised from the dead. Here we are now, six days later, and he has taken with him only three of those 12 disciples. They're not up in Caesarea Philippi anymore. We don't actually know where they are. People have speculations as to where this happened, but we don't necessarily know that. But he's with three of these disciples, Peter, James, and John. What we also don't know is why did he just take three of them? Don't you think all 12 of them would have liked to have learned? I could understand if he said, we're going to go up on this mountain. You know what, Judas? Why don't you hang down here for a little while? I'm going to take these 11 with me or something. But he takes three of them. And people have all sorts of theories as to why. And I guess it's fun to kind of think through that. But we can't say for certain why Peter and James and John. But what we do know that is important is what those three men observed. And what they observed was, as it says in, I guess it's verse 3, that Jesus was transfigured before them. He was transfigured before them. That's a term which means to change into another form. It's the Greek word, met, let's see here, metamorpheo is the Greek word, and we get the word, obviously you can hear it, it's the word metamorphosis. And if you've ever watched, probably haven't sat there and watched, but have you ever gone on YouTube and watched like a time-lapse video of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, then you have an idea. And so unless you could actually see this happening, this is a picture of a caterpillar. Isn't he cute? Look at that little fella. I'm not sure what side's the front and what side's the back, which is a bad sign of cuteness, but there's a caterpillar. Now, unless you could watch that become that over there, you would never believe that it was the same insect or the same creature unless you could actually see it. Though it's the same creature, they couldn't be any more different. And that's because that caterpillar has undergone a metamorpheo, a change into a completely different form. That's what happened to Jesus here. 
As these three disciples look on, he underwent this metamorphosis. He was changed into another form. It was the form of him, to borrow the phrase from chapter 16, 28, having come into his kingdom, showing forth his glory. Now, he was recognizable to them, yet he was altogether different to them. And they knew that immediately. They knew that they were in the presence of glory. Later on, when Peter would describe this in the book of 2 Peter, he would say this, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's not a term we use very often. He says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now we continue on, not only were the disciples in the presence of glory, but along with the transfigured Lord, it tells us that appeared to them also Moses and Elijah, and that Moses and Elijah were talking with the Lord. Verse 3 there, it says, behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. What do you think they were talking about? Like, well, shooting a breeze, you know, how you been? I haven't seen it with something, you know. We don't know exactly. Luke tells us this, though. Matthew doesn't tell us, but the Luke passage does tell us exactly what they're talking about. Luke 9.30, it says this. Behold, two men were talking with Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So we know what they were talking about. They were talking about his upcoming crucifixion that he would leave this earth, if you will, and make his way to heaven. They were speaking about the coming passion of the Christ when he would give his life as a ransom for many. They speak to him about the cross and presumably about the resurrection. Now, another question that I have when I look at this passage is, how did the disciples know that it's Moses and Elijah? Was it name badge Sunday, you know, there on the mountain or something? Did that, did that how they know? You know, in our day... We could see some famous people, and we're like, hey, that's Barack Obama. Look at that, because we see him on TV and things like that. Or we know people from the past. If Abraham Lincoln came on the scene, hey, Abraham Lincoln's here. But these guys didn't have video. They didn't have pictures. They didn't have magazines where folks' faces would be in. They may, at the best, they have maybe descriptions of what those guys sort of appeared like. And so how do the disciples know that it's Moses and Elijah? Moses lived 1,400 years before this event. Elijah lived almost 900 years before this event, and they had never met him, never saw a picture of them, or anything like that. People sometimes ask, will we know our loved ones in heaven? And I would say certainly. And not only will you know your loved ones in heaven, but you will even know those you've never even met here on the earth when you get to heaven. They knew Moses and Elijah because that's how it works in heaven the family of God, and so they know one another. And so they look over and they immediately know it's Moses and Elijah that have appeared alongside of the Lord. Next question that I have as I'm reading through this, why those two men? Lots of great men and women in the history of the Old Testament. Why Moses? Why Elijah in this particular instance? Well, I think it's because Moses represents the Old Testament law. Elijah is representative of the prophets. Oftentimes you'll hear statements like the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. When we use that phrase, we're talking about the sum of the Old Testament revelation. 
And we know there's even more to the, the Old Testament than just the law that Moses wrote, just the messages of the prophets. We have poetic books, historical books, and so on. But when we use the phrase the law and the prophets, we're referring to the Old Testament rep- revelation. And so these men, as representatives of the Old Testament revelation, are meeting with the one that is revealed in the Old Testament. And they come, if you will, as the standard bearers or the representatives. In some sort of resurrected body, these two Old Testament saints appear with the Lord in his glory, and they begin discussing with him the very reason why he laid down his glory so that he could come to this earth and suffer and die on a cross on our behalf. And so there they are, they're meeting with the Lord. And what did the disciples do? What would you do? Well, they do. They interrupt the heavenly conversation, interjecting themselves into the occasion. At least Peter does that. We don't know if he's acting alone. and Everyone's like, shut up. You always talk too much or whatever, and they get in a fight or something. Or if they're like, Peter, say something. And he, he does because he likes to typically. But notice it says in verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. You know, <laughs> I don't know if he did it that way. But he says, if you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Sometimes, if you don't know what to say, it's best to say nothing. Sometimes, if you don't know what to say, it's best to say nothing. Peter begins by saying, Lord, it's good that I am here with you. He he begins that way. And then he offers to make three tents, tabernacles, some of your versions say, that they might dwell in. Now, we have no ability to understand. There's no reason, no clues given elsewhere. There's no reason for us to know why he offers to build these tabernacles, these tents, these temporary dwelling places. Mark and Luke tell us, they both tell us, actually, as they recount this story, that he came up with this statement. He said something because he didn't know what to say. It says in Mark 9, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And so he said something. It says in Luke 9, 33, not knowing what he said. And again, if you don't know what to say, just say nothing. You're better off. Chuck Smith used to say, better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you're a fool than to open it and dispel all doubt. You know, you're better (laughs) off just saying nothing. And so he offers to build them, if you will. Don't think of tents like guys going out camping, gals going camping. Think of it like a little pavilion. He offers to build them three pavilions up there on the mountain so that perhaps maybe so they can settle there. Let's build pavilions. We can settle there. People can climb up the mountain, and they can come and hear Moses and Elijah and Jesus teach. They'll listen to a little Old Testament law, then they'll get some prophecy, then Jesus will put it all together, and it'll be great. We can have pilgrimages up to the top of the mountain. Perhaps that's his thinking. Some have suggested I would buy into this. This is kind of how I might feel, is that maybe he's trying to prolong the experience. He's in the presence of glory. This is awesome. Let's build a house up here and let's live up here and never leave this place. This is great. Now, tents are temporary dwellings to get oneself outside of the elements so that you can allow the experience to go on just a little bit longer. You hear the phrase mountaintop experience. These guys are in the ultimate mountaintop experience. They're literally on top of a mountain experiencing what it is they're experiencing. And none of us, I think, can blame them for not wanting it to end. And so if that's their motivation, we have to say to them, unfortunately, that's not how white wor- life works. Mountaintop experiences, they're great. Retreats, 
conferences, Sunday morning events, gathering together with the saints and all of that, a fabulous quiet time can become a mountaintop experience for us in some particular way. But the problem is this, mountaintop experiences are not designed to be the norm of life. Because at some point, you have to go down into the plain, and sometimes you even have to go down into the valley. But we know this, that it's okay that we go down into the flat places, we go down into the valleys, because the Lord goes with us even into those places. He's not secluded to the mountain, but he goes down into the deep places with us as well. And so we want to prolong the mountaintop experiences because we're convinced that's where the Lord is. But the secret, I think, I don't know if it's that like, wow, how'd you come up with that? I don't think it's like that kind of secret. But the secret to peace and joy in the Christian walk is realizing that Jesus is with us in both the high places and the low places. And I think many times we, we got that. We understand that. But he's with us even in the mundane, normal, daily life places as well. And I think that's the secret of joy in our relationship with Christ, or at least one of them. Well, whatever Peter's reasons for interrupting the conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah, that suggestion that he gives doesn't go over too well. Poor Peter, and we all get to read about his failures. Poor Peter, verse 5, he says, Peter was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Matthew tells us that a bright cloud overshadowed them and that a voice spoke from that cloud. And that's the voice. This is the voice of God appearing in the Shekinah glory, that Old Testament term that described, if you will, the glory of God when he would, in a veiled way, manifest himself to people. Because if he took that veil and he completely opened it up, you'd all die of a heart attack. We'd all die of a heart attack. And so you have the voice of God appearing in the Shekinah glory, and in the nicest possible terms, God the Father is saying, Peter, you need to be quiet, is what he's saying. I was going to write down, Peter, you just need to shut up for a minute, or whatever, but that doesn't seem like God's heart, and so it's Greg's heart. But he says, Peter, you need to be quiet. You need to listen to my son. That's who you need to listen to, Peter. Now, the rebuke may also be a rebuke, of the idea that Jesus is one of the many great prophets and teachers, that he's somehow on par with, um, with Moses and with Elijah, and then there's Jesus. And so perhaps it's a rebuke to this idea of, we'll set up three little pavilions, and people can come up and hear the great teaching of Moses and Elijah, and you too, Jesus, they can hear your great teaching. And he's like, no, no, listen to him. Moses and Elijah pointed to him, now listen to him. Perhaps it's speaking of that as well. Jesus is far superior to even the great Moses and the great prophet Elijah. He is the creator of great Mo- the great Moses and the great prophet Elijah. Peter, we don't need three tents. We need one tent so that people can come and hear my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's the one that they need to listen to. Well, as the, story, the account goes on appropriately, the disciples are freaked out. You would be too by this veiled appearance of God. It says that they fall down on their faces terrified. Sometimes we hear people say, when I die and get to heaven, I'm going to march up to God and I'm going to tell him. Oh, really? Are you? Are you really going to tell him? I hope I get there first to watch it because you're not going to. When you get there, you're going to be freaked out and you're going to fall down. The disciples, as the disciples do, you too will. You'll fall down on your face 
as it says here, in holy reverence. Notice verse 7, Jesus, though, he comes and he touches them. How sweet. And he says to them, rise, have no fear. And now back in his veiled human body, Jesus ministers to these disciples. He touches the disciple. He speaks words of comfort to each of them. And verse 8 says, and they lifted up their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus only. You know, I imagine as Jesus comes over and touches them and speaks words of comfort to them, that they very, very slowly begin to open up their eyes, not quite wanting to see what may perhaps be in front of them. And eventually their eyes begin to take in that it's, okay, it's just normal Jesus again. And they open up their eyes in delight. Well, we continue on. Let's look at verse 9 to 13. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Do you ever have juicy news you just wanted to share and you're not allowed to share it or whatever? Like, come on, Lord. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And so they begin to make their way down this mountain back to the rest of the disciples. And as they go down the mountain, Jesus instructs the three men, don't tell anybody what just had. He said, hey, let's let's keep this Shekinah glory thing. Moses, Elijah, great Old Testament saints, my metamorphosis to a being out of this world. Let's just keep that between you and I. And again, I love when the Lord does that. You remember when Jesus healed the man that was paralyzed for 38 years? He says, now go home to your house, but don't tell anybody that you're healed. And they go, what? <laughs> like, I'm having a party tonight, Lord. I don't know about you. And there's going to be dancing. And Thriller is coming out. And we're going to have a great time or whatever it may be. And so don't tell anybody. Amazingly, it seems that the disciples keep the secret. I, I just find that rem- remarkable. Jesus commanded them to. They were obedient in this instance here. And on this journey down the mountain, they ask him a good question, a very good question. They ask him, verse 10, why do the scribes say that first Elijah might come? Why do those interpreters of the Bible, those teachers of ours that we have, why is it so popular to expect that the Messiah, excuse me, that Elijah will first come before Messiah, yet here you are as Messiah and Elijah hasn't come? They're, they're really saying, what about Elijah? And they're pointing back to a verse in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, 5, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What they're asking is, how does your coming fit into the whole equation of where Elijah works into this equation and so on? How does Elijah's coming fit into your messiahship? It's almost as if they're saying, now, I think there may be two ways they're trying to figure this out. And I can't get into their head, but we'll try. One is, look, we know that you're the Messiah, and we just saw Elijah, but you came before Elijah. How does that fit with the prophecy? Maybe that's what they're asking. Or, we know that you're Messiah, but Elijah hasn't come. And they wouldn't consider, he was only here 30 seconds, that doesn't count. You know, like, and so they're saying, we know you're the Messiah, but Elijah hasn't really come and ministered. And so how does that fit with the prophecy? So one way or another, they're trying to figure out where Elijah fits into all of these things. Now, we, in hindsight, we think we're pretty smart, don't we? Because we're on the backside. You know, we're like Alex Trebek. And he's like so smug with his correct answers. And you're like, yeah, well, you got him in front of you. 
You know what I mean? And he, he makes fun of the people on the show. He drives me nuts or whatever. And so we think we're smarter than the disciples or whatever because we have hindsight. We can look back and we're like, come on, man, this is easy. But for them, it wasn't so easy. With hindsight, we know the clarity of the fact that there are two comings of God's Messiah. There was a first coming where he would suffer as a servant on our behalf. We often refer to that as he would come as the suffering servant. And then we know that there, the Scripture teaches there would be a second coming where he would establish his throne and his righteous rule. And we refer to that oftentimes as he's going to come as a conquering king. And we've been taking notice in our study of the book of Matthew that the Jews had missed the fact that there would be two advents of the Messiah, two comings of the Messiah. And they totally bought into the idea of the idea of a conquering king. But this idea of a suffering servant, they, they missed that, how that fit into God's working. And thus they overwhelmingly missed Jesus, a poor guy from the town of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of the town of Nazareth? Why on earth would God's Messiah come out of Nazareth? That doesn't make any sense. They overwhelmingly missed this idea of the suffering servant because he didn't fit the bill of what they were expecting. Now, the Malachi prophecy, which speaks of, again, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Some of your versions may say the great and dreadful day of the Lord or the great and terrible day of the Lord. That was, is not and was not speaking of Elijah coming as a precursor to the suffering servant. That's not speaking of Elijah coming before Jesus' first coming but rather it speaks of a precursor before Messiah's second coming, when he would come to this earth as a conquering king. And like many other contemporaries, the disciples were having a hard time putting all these pieces together, and so they asked Jesus the question, and in verse 11 he answers, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. And so he says, he's coming before my second coming. When the Lord returns, and establishes his kingdom in the end days, or the end of days, Elijah will come first. The scripture teaches it. And he will come as Christ's forerunner. This is one of the reasons why a lot of people think, as they look at Bible eschatology and the study of end times, and you have in Revelation chapter 11, you have the two witnesses, prophetic witnesses that are outside of Jerusalem. This is why, one reason why many people think that one of those two witnesses is Elijah the prophet that that'll be his opportunity to come as a precursor to the Messiah. We don't necessarily know that for certain, but this is one of the places, Malachi is at least one of the places they would look to. So Jesus says Elijah does come, that is, he will come. But Jesus also offers a concession to that prevailing idea that he would come before the first coming. And he says in verse 12, I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer as he did at their hands. Now notice what it says there in verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Again, offering a bit of a concession, Jesus says, in one sense, guys, Elijah has already come. And sadly, he was rejected as I will be rejected. Now Luke tells us, that John the Baptist, he, it says, ministered in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And it's in that sense that Jesus is offering this concession that Elijah has already come. 
And notice the disciples know exactly what Jesus is talking about. In verse 13, it says, Then they understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Again, this doesn't mean that John the Baptist is a reincarnated form of Elijah or something like that. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You don't keep coming back to kind of get better as you go or anything like that. That's why it's crucial for us that know salvation in Christ alone to share that with other people because it's permitted, It's uh, appointed unto man once to die and then there's a judgment. The days are short. And so he says, the spirit the power of Elijah. John came in that form. Now, they get to the bottom of the hill. We're picking up in verse 17, and notice immediately they're in one of those valleys. This is one of those reasons why you don't want to leave a retreat, because you know when you get home, your dog's going to have thrown up all over the carpet, and a pipe's going to break in your house, and now you've got to deal with life again. And so the happy feeling is gone. Look at verse 17. It says, When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, And kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So earlier I mentioned these mountaintop experiences that we work so hard to try to maintain, primarily so we can keep ourselves from having to go down into the unpleasant valley experiences. And again, these guys had the ultimate mountaintop experience. Literally, they were on top of a mountain. And now they're right back in the thick of things. And so again, looking at verse 14, they come down. There's a crowd of people that is already there. That alone is frustrating. Let me ease in, please, to life or whatever. But there's a crowd that is already there. And then a man comes before him, desperately crying out to him, to have mercy on his son. His son, it says, is an epileptic. At least this is what the dad says. He is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, even falling into the fire and often into the water, you know, risking death. And he says, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. So as soon as Jesus gets back to the crowd, this man with a demon-possessed son falls down before the Lord and begs the Lord to show mercy on his son. Now imagine Peter, James, and John. Just in the presence of God, although they couldn't tell anybody about it, but just in the presence of God, and now they are in the presence of demons. Talk about the happy feeling being gone and the whirl of emotions. Again, mountaintop experiences are great, but that's not life's norm. The norm of life is oftentimes very messy. Commentator William Barclay, he wrote this. He says, it's easy to feel Christian in the moment of prayer and meditation. It's easy to feel close to God when the world is shut out. But that's not religion, that's escapism. Real religion is to rise from our knees before God and to meet men and their problems uh, and the problems of the human situation. We can't just sit up on a mountaintop. We gotta get out and we gotta interact with the reality of life. And so Jesus has this opportunity, the disciples do. 
fellow comes asking for help with his epileptic son. Now, the boy may or may not have actually had epilepsy. It's not like this guy went down to the doctor and got labs done or something like that and figured it out. He thinks his son has epilepsy. His son is showing signs of epilepsy with the seizures and things like that. And he may have had epilepsy, but he also may not have had epilepsy. It's a tough word to say (laughs) 10 times in a row. He certainly has the symptoms being thrown down, going into seizures and so on. But Jesus points out that the cause of this boy's symptoms is more than a physical malady, but that it's actually something spiritual. Notice the direct correlation that is made. Look at verse 18, between the correlation between the demon and the seizures. It says, Jesus rebuked the demon and the boy was healed instantly. The demon came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. We want to be careful with this. Does this mean that all people with epilepsy or with epileptic symptoms are demon-possessed. It doesn't mean that. We don't even know if the kid really was epileptic or not. What we do know is that this kid had epileptic symptoms that were tied in with demon possession. But we want to be careful with some blanket statement that all people that have a sickness like this, disease like this, they're demon-possessed. Don't bring them to doctors. Bring them to the church and they'll be healed, or whatever it may be. Be very careful with that. But desperate, this man brings his son. He goes first to the disciples, as we saw, and sadly, verse 16 says, they could not heal him. And now he brings them to Jesus. When's he coming down off the mountain? And he comes down, he runs, he meets him finally, and he says, help. The disciples, unable to help. They had been able to help others previously. They were able to help those that were sick before. They were able to deliver those that had demons before. But in this particular, actually look at chapter 10, 1 of Matthew. We read this recently. It specifically says that the Lord sent them out and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease disease and every affliction. Specifically says that. So why not this time? Well, that's certainly what the disciples want to know too. And so a little bit later, verse 19, they're going to ask that question. After the kid is healed and he's on his way, they're going to ask the question, Lord, we helped others. How come we couldn't help in this case? What's what's going on in this particular circumstance? Let me read 19 and 20. The disciples came privately to the Lord, and they said, Why could we not cast it out? And he answered them. He said, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, Move from here to there. And it would move, and nothing would be impossible for you. They were unable to cast out this demon, as Jesus says, because of their little faith. Mark, in chapter 9, of the parallel of this passage, would also add the phrase, because of their lack of prayer. He said, this kind can only be driven out, but by prayer, he says. Now, depending on the versions that you're reading, you may or may not notice that there's no verse 21 in your Bible. Go ahead and take a look. In your Bibles, you have verse 20. Some of you have 21. Others of you, it goes right to verse 22. The reason for that is because there are different manuscripts that different versions of our Bibles are based on. Let me just take it aside here for a moment to say this, because it's a bit disconcerting to know, how come you got a verse and I don't have that verse? What's going on here? I quit the faith. I'm done. You know, I don't believe it. So let me just sort of explain a little here of what's going on about our present Bibles. Scholars and archaeologists, folks like that, 
are aware of no original text of the Bible in existence today. So you, maybe you've heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Have you heard about that? And the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they're something like 800 B.C. or something like that. Um, so they go back forever, whatever it may be. So they're at least 2,000 years old and even beyond, 2,500 years old, whatever it may be. So they go back forever here. They're not even originals. Of their copies of the originals. Okay, so there are no original texts of the Bible in existence today. What we have in our hands today are based on copies of those originals, and in some cases, copies of the copies. And those are called manuscripts. Now, you might hear that, and you know, you might, what? That's crazy. How could we trust them if they're copies of copies? How could we try? We all played Whisper Down the Lane, you know, right? Apparently not. All right. It's fun. You should try it. You and your family. It's a great game. But anyhow, but you always get that one kid who's like, I'm going to mess it up on purpose. You know, and it's people like Henry Morris that do that. You know, whatever. You got to watch people like that. So, but you hear that and you say, copies of copies, that's crazy. How can we actually trust them? Well, rest assured, there's very good reason to trust these manuscripts, including the reliability of those copies. That is comparing copy with copy. Not a copy from a copy, but a copy over there with a copy over there and comparing them and saying, wow, these line up nearly perfectly. 98.6% of the time, these line up. So that's one reliability test, if you will. The fact also that as early as the second generation of the church, this would be late, one, uh, late first century, moving toward the year 100, there are quotations of the original text that are found in the writings of church fathers and things like that. And the quotations of the original text were being made as early as, but even before the manuscripts that we have today. So we have copies of those guys' books. And as you read those, this is, it's, I think it's amazing, 99.86% identical to the copies that would come after them. Quoting from the original, if you will. So the manuscripts are very reliable. You could do a lot of studies on it. Uh, Charlie Campbell, when he was here with us, he went into this idea. I imagine Oxano is going into this sort of an idea, the, the group that meets on Thursday evenings for the month of August. You can pick up any research book that you want to. You'll find that they're very reliable. But anyway, I put that, I put that out there for your consideration. Depending on the version that you are reading, either what would be or what is, verse 21 is either going to be in the body of your text or more than likely, it'll be at the bottom of your Bibles with a little note that says something like, some manuscripts include verse 21, which says this, and they'll put it there. So you have access to what it says, and so I'll bring it up. It's, it says this. This would be Matthew 17, 21. It says, this kind, nev this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. And so Jesus says the reason why you could not heal this boy of his demon possession is because of your lack of faith, your lack of prayer, and your lack of fasting. Quite frankly, I wish that 21 wasn't in there because I'm not a big fan of fasting. And so, you know, let's, okay, prayer and, and faith, I'll deal with that. I don't want to have to deal with the fasting thing. But more than likely, there, it's all three of those reasons. Lack of faith, lack of prayer, and lack of fasting. If the disciples were looking for a reason for why they were having no success in healing this boy and casting out the demon, where they needed to look at was themselves. Sadly, in our day, a lot of faith healers will oftentimes blame the person for not being healed. If you had more faith, you'd be healed. Jesus points out here, if you had more faith, she'd be healed, he'd be healed. 
They were the reason that the ministry wasn't taking off. They were the reason why things weren't happening, if you will. And Jesus seems to be a little bit perturbed here. Look at verse 17 again. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, I don't know if the Lord was actually frustrated. His words certainly sound like it. And if he was frustrated, I could certainly understand it. He has given these guys a few chapters or studies back, chapter 16, 19. He has given these guys the keys to the kingdom, the keys to the family car, so to speak, the keys to unlock the door to salvation. He's given that to them. And here they are now, if you will, in their first fender bender already. He says, haven't I modeled ministry to you well enough yet? Ministry isn't done in our own resources, and it's not done in our own fleshly abilities. Ministry is done in faith and bathed in much prayer, and depending on the manuscript you have, with much fasting. And without those things, you will accomplish nothing, or at least nothing eternally significant. You might accomplish a whole bunch of things that people will look at, but it'll be burned up in the fire eventually. He says faith. With faith. Even a teeny bit of faith. You see that there in 19 and 20? If you have faith like, the, like a grain of mustard seed, you will be able to move mountains. He says in verse 20, nothing will be impossible for you. Again, I think another verse we want to be careful with. I say, of course... But perhaps that's not everybody would jump in and agree immediately with that. But of course, Jesus is speaking more metaphorically here. Jesus is not saying that we can arrange the world's geology if only we believe enough. That's not what he's saying. Because if that were the case, you know what I'd be praying for? I'd pray for a beach in my backyard and a beautiful mountain scene in my front yard. That's what I would be praying for. And I believe I have the faith for that. Jesus' point is not that with the great, this amount of faith, we can you know, geologically change everything around. His point is to contrast the tiny mustard seed of faith, the smallest of seeds in that place and in that time that they were familiar with, with the enormous mountain that he had just come down from. The tiny little seed with the enormous mountain that he had just come down from with his disciples. That's what his point is here. And so you need to be careful with that. What's really important to take notice of is the size of faith needed to accomplish the impossible, whether that be casting out a demon from a boy or reaching a community for Christ. How much faith is needed for something like that? Jesus says if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you. The faith that we we need to accomplish God's work has more to do with the kind of faith we have than how much faith that we have. What do you have faith in? Because even a small amount of faith can accomplish great things if it's placed in a great and a mighty God. The disciples would have to remember this. Jesus had been trying to teach them this during his ministry, and now that he has given them the keys to the kingdom, it was paramount, don't forget this lesson. Because I'm putting you in charge, and eventually that would come down to us. I'm putting you in charge of my church, of ministry. And that ministry has to be done by faith. We would, be, we would do well to remember that, just as they needed to. And now, so now our final verse, 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly 
distressed. So just as he did back in chapter 16, he very clearly spells out what is ahead for him. He will be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised. Very clearly. Now back in chapter 16, it was just him and his closest disciples, the 12 apostles, when he disclosed that information. Now he's down in the Galilee. And he's likely amongst the greater number of disciples. We know another place says 120 of them. So there's more than just the 12 that he's down, it seems, with the whole crowd of them. And he makes them aware of this. Maybe that's the reason for their great distress. Because for that group, it's the first time actually hearing it. I guess another possibility might be that the apostles, upon hearing this again, are thinking, now? It's happening now? And that would cause great distress as you can imagine. And so, needless to say, hearing once again what's coming down the pike and not quite certain, am I going to be crucified too along with you as one of your disciples, that it would cause a great distress. Make sense? All right. That's where we're going to stop. We'll pick up next time that we're together in chapter 17. Let's close our time together in prayer. Father, we appreciate, Lord, the word. I'm so grateful Lord, for the confidence that we can have in the Word, that we can come to you in your Word and just sort of settle and open up our hearts and open up our minds and prepare to receive from you. Lord, I'm so grateful that your Word is not some old, distant book, but that it's living and active. And Lord, that it continues to work in our lives. It's the very Word of God spoken into each one of our hearts each time that we gather, Lord, with hearts open to receive it. And so, Father, we take these things that we have learned, some sort of academic things, Lord, this morning, but we pray that you would take the things that we have learned this morning and that you would apply them into the deepest places of our hearts. And as a result, Lord, we would go out of this place having grown from our time with you. Lord, we ask also just sort of a special prayer that Father, that we would discover you in the valleys and in the mundane places. And Lord, that the exhilaration that we experience from being with you on the mountaintop and seeing a bit of your glory, Lord, that your presence would be so real to us in those other places as well. Lord, that our hearts and our minds and our lives would be marked with the joy of being in your presence continually. And Lord, I believe that is a prayer that is being prayed according to your will. And so we pray that you would hear that prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.